Spaces. We're here to talk about anything and everything and even the toughest things. Today's episode, we'll be discussing Abdul Qadir and his controversial discussion to surrender to the French army and how that decision was based on an uncontroversial trust and rapport with his French army. Emily, would you like to introduce your friend to us? Yes. Shauna and I are friends from church, and she is someone who is very skilled at building community and bringing people together and is what I like to call an extrovert's extrovert. Um, and I've often heard Shauna say things like, I love strangers. Um, and so I kind of want to relate this attitude and mindset that Shauna has of building connections with people different from herself to the life and work of Abdul Qadir. Shauna, it's really nice to meet you. Um, have you ever heard of Amir Abdul Qadir? Very little. So I was in a world religion class, I guess, a couple years ago in 2016, and he was mentioned when we were talking about kind of a dichotomy of identities. And all that I know about him is that he was a warrior and a Sufi saint, and that Abraham Lincoln like mentioned him at some point because he was credited with saving over 10,000 Christians in Damascus, mm-hmm. perhaps. And so that is the sum total of what I've ever heard about him. Also that he was really smart, that he's an intellectual. That's it. Yes, that's really impressive. That is definitely a lot more than Emily and I knew before we started the Ambassadors program. And so that's quite amazing information. Can you tell us where you learned all of this? Yes, so my minor in college was anthropology and specifically I only took classes in cultural anthropology. And so this class was about world religions and just kind of shared origins. Um, So most of the class was a presentation of how similar all of these religions were, whether they were monotheistic or not, like how saints or like what qualities or traditions kind of overlapped. And so he came up, like I said, when we're talking about identities of in the United States, it's really common to say like, oh, this is who I am and this is my religious identity. They're not necessarily things that you can't separate out or you can't look at and say, oh, this is how like my Christian faith impacts this or here's how being Jewish impacts this. And so he came up because typically you don't think of saints as warriors, right? We see saints as Um, very holy, and typically that means like not violent, which is how we might associate a warrior or someone who's ever participated in like armed conflict. He was kind of like a counterexample of, look, he's both a saint and a warrior um, and within context of that class. Oh, that's a really amazing class there. Emily, would you like to tell us a little bit more about Abdul Qadir and what we're going to discuss today? Yes. So as we mentioned in a previous episode, Abdul Qadir was born in 1808 in Algeria and was a commander during the French invasion of 1830. Today, we're focusing on 1848 and the unlikely alliance between Abdul Qadir and the general to the French Army of Africa. So even though they were on opposing sides of this armed conflict, the two were able to work together and eventually ended up in the Mira abdicated voluntarily because of his vision for the future of Algeria. So rather than continue an endless war, Abdul Qadir sacrificed his kind of immediacy and short-term like ego and like winning for the sake of winning and decided rather to choose stability and peace for Algeria rather than continuing an endless war. Um, and so to quote from John Kaiser's book, Commander of the Faithful, Abdul Qadir's knowledge 
of the law and his humanity had convinced him that continuing the struggle against France was no longer God's will. And so that kind of helped him to decide to partner with someone who had been an enemy and to come to an agreement and an abdication. Um, and there's a lot to unpack in all of this, and I'm sure we could spend hours discussing any number of things in regards to this, but today I want to focus specifically on the idea of developing trust and relationships with people who are different from you, and in Abdul Qadr's case, even a sworn enemy. Shauna, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and about your life and how you relate to people different from you? I know that you spent some time in Jordan, the country, and maybe tell us about your experience living there and developing friendships and trust with people different faith and cultures. Certainly. Um, I will say that, kind of to your point about me being an extrovert's extrovert, I'm, growing up, my mom used to say that I was going to be the child that was kidnapped and they wouldn't even give her candy. And that was because I would just walk up to strangers and be like, hi, how are you? Like, what are you doing? I like your dog. Like, whatever. And just like this constant stream of conversation. And so I will say that from a very early age, I've just seen people. Um, I think that what that I remember is like growing up and going, you know, into grocery stores in Dallas, like there might be homeless people outside or people just like hanging out in the alleyway. And most of the times, if you're like walking to Kroger, you park, you walk to Kroger, you don't, I mean, you're not making eye contact, you're not talking to these people. And so I would though, because like, oh mom, there's a man laying there. Hello, man, like, how are you? Or like, there's a, there's a lady with her dog. And so I think part of it is just like growing up, just seeing people. Like I see that you were there and I want to like look you in the eye and say, good morning, how are you? And give you a smile. Starting with that also means that a lot of those like maybe social norms or just like negative experiences that would teach us not to do that quite as much, right? Like people are uncomfortable when they see someone who's homeless or people might be uncomfortable if they think that they're in an environment where they don't really know people. Like that feeling of discomfort that keeps people from socializing and being really open, I like don't honor. So even if I do have that feeling, if I'm like, oh, this is an environment that I'm not familiar with, I don't know anyone there. Like no one knows who I am. I don't know anyone's name. Like that sense of discomfort will not keep me from talking. That will be a, ooh, I don't know you and I don't feel very comfortable. So like I should walk around and introduce myself to every person in this room so that I can no longer say I don't know anyone's name. And sometimes that's really great. I've uh, been very fortunate that people typically respond very well to that. Other people are like, wow, that's so intimidating. Whereas I'm like, I don't know you, but there's an empty chair. Like, let's sit down. Can I sit here until I wait for my friend? And so that's just never been a barrier. Like that fear or that discomfort of not knowing is not something that makes me not talk or like wilt a little bit. It like pushes me to like challenge that almost and say, I don't know you, but my name is Sean. It's nice to meet you. Wow, that's awfully definitely brave of you. I cannot say that for myself. I'm definitely really an introvert. So only in small groups do I feel comfortable to even speak out. Um, but tell me a little bit more about your your visit to, to Jordan. How long were you there? I was there for five and a half months. I like to say six, but it was five and a half. <laughs> it was spring of 2016. So an interesting year to be in Jordan. Uh, my research project, I should start, yeah. I did a semester abroad and Vanderbilt doesn't have an established program uh, there. It didn't at the time. And so that meant that I went without like a crew. Like there wasn't someone who was like in the homestay with me. Like there wasn't a a group of like Vanderbilt students that I knew. So we got there and then there was like a language academy and like we would take class at the language academy and then we were kind of on our own for our own research project. When I say we, I mean people who are also at the language academy. So they could have been from different countries, different schools. My research was community integration of Syrian refugees. Initially, I thought I was going to focus exclusively on Syrian refugees, but once I got to Jordan, I realized that there were still a lot of Palestinian refugees from 48 and onward and just kind of the, the ongoing conflict between Palestine and Israel. So that also kind of had a lot of impact in my research. But essentially, I just wanted to study 
Like when we look at refugees and we look at refugee camps, we look at kind of all the work that goes into that with the UN and with these like major NGOs. Um, there's a lot. People can tell you where the money's going, right? We can say it costs this much to feed them. It costs this much to house them. It costs this much to have a school. It costs this much to like do all these other things. But there, there's not a lot of research that talks about if the kids are enrolled in school or if they're participating in birthday parties, like socially, how are the refugees being integrated or not integrated? As we know, the Syrian refugee crisis has been ongoing for, for several years. And so the question is like, oh, if you're in Jordan and you're a refugee and you're not in Syria, but you've been there for eight years, at what point does your child need to go to school? At what point should your child be making friends? At what point should your life not be on hold and just hoping that the war will end and you'll go back and it'll be good, but should you put down roots and start to create some sort of stability and start to like build towards a particular future? And so a lot of my work was about how do you feel? Do you have friends? Like, do you know Jordanian citizens? Are you employed? Are you employed, you know, at the refugee camp where there are a lot of women that will make, um, they'll like fix clothing or they'll make treats and just kind of sell them there. Like, are you going to the grocery store? Like, are you going off of the refugee camp? So a lot of it was around just like socially, like finding one ways to measure if they're engaging, but also if they felt like this was becoming home or this was a place, not just a place that they were temporarily staying, but a place where they were putting down roots. That's really interesting just because the the term, I guess, refugee camps has a completely different meaning to me. Yeah. And just kind of hearing it from your perspective where you're kind of asking like, oh, what are the children doing and whatnot? And for me, when I think refugee camps and back to, you know, my family and and being in the war with Afghanistan and us Mm -hmm. going to Pakistan as refugees, it was survival. Yeah. There was, you know, the the thought of of birthday parties or even, you know, what, you know, fancy dress are you going to wear for the holidays never came across. It was all about staying alive, having a next meal, and finding a way out. Um, You know, and and my dad worked with the government and stuff, and we came to the U.S. as refugees and stuff. And so the the term is of, hey, when the war is over, we can go back, kind of makes me think I, I never thought of that when I grew up. Like, we came here as refugees, but this was home. And and to be honest, in Afghanistan, the wars never ended. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, and I don't know if that would ever mean something to cross my, and I know it does for my mom. She likes to still visit and she still wants to go, even though with mm-hmm. all the, um, the ruckus that there, because that, that is always be home for her. Mm-hmm. I came so young that this is considered home for me as much as, you know, as other people ask like, oh, do you ever want to go and visit and et cetera. And it's like, you know, I don't really know a lot of my family there and stuff. I know, I, I know it's there. I know my parents talk about them, but uh, but that's very, very interesting. I never really thought of that side as far as, you know, the of refugee camps actually being a, a groups and stuff where organizations are helping funding mm-hmm. different parts of it and, and and thinking about the social aspect of the children. I mean, that's definitely a different different thought. I've never even considered it being that. So what, what was your some of your conclusions on your research? So it's and, interesting because your position was a common position. And so what I'll say is, but essentially there were two positions. One position was yours, which was, Syria's not home. This is where I've been for a, a larger portion of my life than maybe there. So we especially saw this with children, like younger children or children who didn't have, like maybe they're 10 or something, but they didn't have a lot of memory um, of, of Syria. And so all they know, kind of to your point, stories that your parents had told you or other family members. And in some cases, you had children that were born in the refugee camp, right? So like they have no experience of Syria that isn't their families. Um, and um, within it, I'll say, I'm talking about Zatari refugee camp, which depending on who you talk to, if you talk to like the UN or NGO versus like the Jordanian government, um, you'll get different numbers on how many people are actually there. 
So I'll give you a range. At the time, the range was somewhere around 85 to 90,000 up to 120,000, depending on who you were talking to. And it was kind of always clear that like one group would give mm-hmm. you a smaller number and one group would give you a much larger number. So originally in, in the immediate like aftermath of the conflict, right? You just have a ton of people being put in a field with a fence, essentially. You have tents and it's just not very well organized. But as it continued to go on, I mean, you start having like grid lines, like you have neighborhoods, right? Like there are neighborhoods that are sponsored by different things. So like there's a school and the school is sponsored by the Americans. So like there's an American flag on the school because that's where the money was coming from. And you might have an Emirati camp that has, you know, really brightly colored houses because after a few winters, like it's desert area, right? So it gets really cold and so... All these makeshift tents are now houses. I mean, they're walls that, you know, that are waterproof, that have roofs and things like that. So you have kids that are three years old. Well, three years old in 2016, like, you've never experienced Syria if your family came and they immediate aftermath of the conflict or as you continue to have more people, like now we're looking at eight years after. Um, and so for children, very similar uh, position or for like the older kids that we interviewed, like, nope, Syria's not home. Like, Syria's where... Syria's what makes my mom cry or like Syria's where, you know, my dad died or whatever. Like they didn't have this same um, kind of emotional uh, attachment there. Um, And we also noticed that older refugees, so people who'd been there for like several years are more inclined to have your position of like, no, it's not. They they say it's going to end soon, that like tomorrow we'll go back, but that's not what's happening. And so like like the weight of hope is just kind of too much. And so it's instead newer refugees that haven't been there very long, they're like, no, soon it'll it'll go, we'll go back. We're going to go, like, I don't need to get a job here. My kids don't need to be enrolled in school. We're just going to, we're just going to stay here once everyone stops fighting and like everything's fine. We're going to go back as soon as possible. So there's definitely this divide of mm-hmm. serious home and I'm going to do everything that I can to get back there or it's been a minute and it's a while and, and now I know that it's not ending anytime soon. And so maybe I should try to create home here or go to this third country where I can start new with my children and just kind of have a blank slate. So it really just depended on how long they'd been there and how far removed from Syria they were, I think, like determine what their position was. That definitely makes sense. It's kind of like the the fresh refugees with their fresh hope um, mm-hmm. and then that hope diminishing um, as the years go by mm-hmm. um, and as a family or even uh, as an individual couple, you start seeing tough times. You know, you stop hoping and you try to, you know, deal with your current situation. Right. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that was a bit like with my family. They, we, we went to Pakistan and for Pakistans, we came here to the U.S. And it was kind of like a, a moment for my dad to, to immediately kind of feel like, OK, I don't think we're going to go back. I'm not going to have. And we were pretty, we were definitely upper middle class, if not first class in, in Afghanistan, working for the government. He, you know, our, our livelihood was well set off. So mm-hmm. um, coming here and suddenly my mom, who had multiple assistants helping with, with the children and the cooking and the cleaning and stuff, was suddenly by herself. Mm-hmm. And she had six kids. And my dad didn't have a job and his education didn't transfer here. Um, and so it was like his thought was immediately going back to school. And um, and so it was just, uh, it was a roller coaster ride for, for many years. Um, and I know I can, I've seen my mom go through that emotional roller coaster ride where she would like miss her mom and her mom was sick and she couldn't go back there and the flights you know just to even go back there were so expensive and it was just out of the question and stuff so um you know we relied a lot you know pretty heavily on on the government aids and stuff here in the first five to six years they Mm -hmm. were here so um i can definitely understand that and as the years have gone by my mom has slowly kind of understood that hey this this is kind of where your children are growing. This is where you have to be comfortable with. And she still talks about going back home and buying a house there and staying there. And we're all like, we want you to be safe. You know, I don't know if we're going to let. So, yeah, so I understand that. Um, 
definitely when they first arrive, it's kind of like, okay, what what do we need to do to to just, you know, hunker down and survive and wait until things calm down and go back to to where, the, you know, how things were and, and that. And you eventually do get to a point where you're like, okay, that's that's not going to happen. Do you think that moving to the United States is what, like, triggered that for your mom? That triggered this, like, oh, this is time, like, now we have to do it? Or do you think at that point, there, just so much time had passed that she realized you that know, that's what she, she had she had seen so much and had gone through so much. So when we came to, to when they had were refugees in Pakistan. Um, she had a son, and, and that son had passed away. Mm-hmm. And, and within those those refugee camps, you talk about health and you know hospitals yeah. and stuff. And and he had a stomach virus, and and you know, and so it was one of those things that I'm sure if there was appropriate medical aid, he probably would have would have been fine and stuff. So um, she had gone through that, and and she was really young, getting married and having kids and stuff to go through that initial you know loss and and whatnot. I think what kind of really settled in for her is, is is definitely the distance. And then, you know, here in the U.S., and my dad spoke and, and wrote English and stuff. My mom absolutely did not. Mm-hmm. Um, so for her, you know, and she didn't drive, and she still doesn't drive. So it was suddenly where you live in a household where you can, you know, walk out and about in the village, and you can get a little rishka, a little car and stuff, and hop in it and, and drive and, you know, have the people, you know, drive you around and whatnot to suddenly being super stationary in this house. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the life is very different, especially when you live more of a, in, in the country, not really in a city life where you mm-hmm. can just go out and about. You're you're literally in your house until right. someone drives you out and stuff. So her life completely changed um, from having tons of people to talk to to suddenly by yourself with your kids at home. And I think things started to eventually settle in because of distance alone. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we're here in the U.S., we have to you know, try to take any kind of opportunities. This is probably best for the kids, et cetera. Um, it is safer. So it was just, it was kind of weird because I never took the time growing up to sit and think about, wow, what would my life have been had we not come to the U.S.? Mm-hmm. And there's every now and then I do find myself sitting and thinking, like, the, my trip back home was in 2010. And just seeing, you know, talking to my cousins who, you know, were, you know, very similar in age, the big difference was, you know, they didn't leave, and, and we did. Um, you know, what they do for, for careers, They you know, some of them lived in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan, um, and they grew up there in Pakistan. So it was just, it was very, very different. And that was the only moments where I actually sat and thought about it because I was like, wow, like, the career and what I do today, like, there's absolutely no way I would have done that if mm-hmm. I was there. Yeah. Absolutely no way. And I like the fact that you talk about yourself being a very, like, people person and just kind of going up to people and being able to start that conversation. And um, and I think that's kind of great. And it's I think it's, like, a like a very good attribute to have. What are some of the struggles that maybe there are points of difference, maybe, in terms of social expectations and norms mm-hmm. in Jordan versus yeah. what you're used to in the U.S.? And, like, how did you handle that? So thank you for the compliment. But yeah. like all those things that you just said were very problematic in a mom, yeah. right? So you're talking like, I'm really smiley. I'm making eye contact. Yeah. I'm talking to strangers. <laughs> Super inappropriate, right? Yeah. And I, it's not like I have a group with me. Like there's not like a, a male or family member. So I'm just like strolling the streets of Vermont. I'm dressed appropriately, right? So I've done my research. I'm wearing colors that are appropriate. I'm wearing, you know, I'm covered. Sometimes my hair is covered. Sometimes my hair is not covered. And that was typically just dependent on where I was going and who I was interviewing. If I was interviewing, say, you know, someone from Saudi Arabia, for sure my hair is going to be covered. (laughs) I'm going to um, the parliament building, for sure my hair is going to be covered. I'm going to a mosque, obviously. I'm just like going to 
Oh, hilarious. McDonald's there is like really fancy. It's like really nice. Like you sit down and you eat there and it's like a significant portion of wages. So like if I'm going to McDonald's, I'm, my hair is not covered. I'm like, I want french fries. But what that also means <laughs> is as I'm like waiting for the taxi, that I'm getting a ton of attention. And looking back and I, and I discussed it with people there, part of that was because I was a girl who's alone. I was really smiley and making eye contact. And so people were just like, what is that? What are you doing? And so that was drawing attention. And the third thing was that I was kind of like an ambiguous shade of brown. Like you don't look at me and immediately say like, oh, you're African. But you also don't look at me and say you're African-American. And so what that means is people were just confused. Um, and so like I was often asked if I was Sudanese and I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, Wallahi. And I'm like, what? Like, no. And I'm like, I'm like, no one would believe me. And so, so often they'd be like, are you Sudanese? And I'm like, no, I swear. I promise I'm American. And they'd be like, oh, you're the family of Obama. And like, those are the two, <laughs> those are the two options. Um, there wasn't an in-between. Um, so like socially that did give me into like kind of a couple situations, especially with taxi drivers, mm-hmm. um, because being so gregarious and just so open and like fun meant that people kind of misinterpreted that as like, Flirtation. Yeah, being flirtatious mm-hmm. or being like very sexually open. And so there were lots of times that people would be like, oh, you don't have to pay. You'll just kiss me. And this is like happening in Arabic. And I'm like, boosik, like boost. So like, what is oh, that no. cat? Like, what's happening? And then you're like, oh, no, like, no. And you, it's not like you can like look and you're like, you just said, you know, and it's one of those things like you see people treating like I could see people treating me differently than they were treating other people like mm-hmm. who had dads with them or like who had a group of friends. And so it took me about a month, like the first three weeks that I was in Jordan, I was like really sad because I didn't like my grasp on the language was it was textbooks, right? So I was saying like really old, like I I forget, but I, at one point I couldn't remember the word for honey. So the word I used was like really old. And they're like, you use like a 200 year old word. Like, like sh- we're talking like me as if I'm talking Shakespearean, right? Mm-hmm. In certain cases. And it's because I didn't have anyone to <laughs> practice with that was modern. And so these people would just kind of laugh at me. And I was like, you're laughing at me. I can tell. Um, and so it took about three weeks for me to, like, make a friend and, like, meet people at cafes where I could make jokes. And so that was one of my first things that I did in Arabic was, like, to learn certain jokes just so I could kind of have that banter. Because um, it's really odd. Like, I felt very socially isolated because I didn't want to, like, offend people by being super forward. And I didn't want people to think, you know, that I was, like, promiscuous or a prostitute. But I also wanted to talk to people. Um, so it just made for a really interesting time. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely learned to stop smiling in it. Random people. Oh, oh that, yeah, that made the biggest difference. I think. Definitely. I mean, it's there in that country, but definitely in Afghanistan, you definitely don't do that. And when I traveled back in 2010, I don't wear the niqab here in the U.S. and stuff, but I did uh, mm-hmm. when I when I went back there, and it was just to to kind of decrease people staring. It's very yeah. weird and stuff because there, I mean, um, and I was in, in Pakistan, but I did cross the borders and went to Afghanistan. A lot of people wore the burqa. And mm-hmm. so you didn't see their face at all. Yeah. Um, and so when they would see you and they can kind of like, it's very strange and stuff just because you're, you know, you're under the sun quite often in Afghanistan. It gets really hot. And so a lot of people are quite tan. Mm-hmm. And so if you're really bright or, or white skinned, they're either thinking that you, you know, you never go outside, which means you always have people working for you or you're from someplace mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Um, so it's just one of those. So you always still have people staring at you, even if your face is half covered um, with the niqab. So it's like, it was very, you're like a veil. Um, so that was always very interesting. But the smiling portion of it, definitely. The second I, you... It took sm- me a yeah. month to, like, realize that that was the... Well, because especially here, if someone's, like... I don't know. I I will say I started covering my hair at night all the time. Sunset hair covered. Just to your point of I would get less attention if I was less obviously different, which helped a lot. But 
I don't know. Like here in the South, like that is normal. Like you talk to straight, like even if you're an introvert, right? Like that you would see someone and like acknowledge that they're there, that you would smile and be hospitable. Like that's so normalized that even in all my study before I went to Jordan, I didn't consider that like smiling and being like having a friendly face would be, it wouldn't be a cultural norm because it's just that ingrained here. So. Oh yeah, no, definitely there. I mean, you smile and it might as well just be like, can you marry me? Right, you know, really, it's, I did get a lot of marriage proposals. Yeah, it was. it's a very like, oh wow, this person is super interested in me to mm-hmm. live with me for the rest of their life with one smile. And you're yeah. just like, I just need for you to grab my luggage. Here's the ticket. You know, like <laughs> that's yeah, and then, honestly And then how. sometimes they like wouldn't take money uh-huh. for that same reason. Like, no, you can just be my girlfriend. Or like, oh, you can just be my, and like, there's not really a word for girlfriend, right? So uh-huh. when they're saying this, they're saying like, Hayati, right? Like they're saying my life. Like, will you be my life? Will you be my heart? And you're like, what is wrong with you? You're like, no, take the $10. I literally just said thank you. Like, I didn't even say. And then I learned that, you know, kind of, again, in that, like, formal versus casual, like, some of the language that I did learn was so formal that when I am saying, like, you know, I'm meeting someone, I'm like, Tasharafna, and they're like, no one's saying that. Like, everyone's just like, thanks, nice to meet you, bye. And I'm, like, being so formal and, like, over the top. So then they're like, oh, just be my girlfriend. Don't pay me. No, it's fine. Just marry me. And I'm like, I don't understand what I did. (laughs) So there are lots of those moments. Oh, yeah. No, my mom had forewarned me. Um, It was definitely when I went to go travel and stuff. And she's like, don't smile. Just hand the person the ticket. Tell them to pick up your luggage and stuff. Let them know. It was like green tags on all of them so we can stick out. and, And that's it. And it felt very awkward for me not yeah. to just be like, oh, thank you and hello and, you know. Small talk. Yeah, yes. just like, here, here's my ticket and stuff. It's the one with the green ribbons. No, I was like, here, it's the one with the green ribbons. I'll be sitting right there. Yeah. And it was just like, boom, boom, boom. And it was just very weird. And he would bring my luggage and stuff like that. And it would be like, um, just follow me. I can't carry it, you know? And it would just, you would go to an area and then you hand him money. And, and the funniest thing is I had no idea that the currency, my mom had just given me a bill, a rupee from, um, and I was just, and I was just told, hand this to the person when you get mm-hmm. there. My mom was already in Afghanistan when I was traveling and stuff. So she wasn't with me. Um, and so I just grabbed it and the person gave me change. And I didn't even know if he should or shouldn't. I have no idea what the cost was. And then I just passed through the gate and then I saw my mom and I completely left the person with the luggage and everything way behind me. And we're just marching through. And I'm like, oh my God, there she is and stuff like that. And when I ran to my mom, my mom's like, well, where's your luggage? And I'm like, I don't know where that guy went. But, uh, you know, I had my uncles and, and cousins and stuff. And so they went and tracked down. And I was like, it's the guy probably wandering around with luggages that have green ribbons on it and stuff. And the, so they tracked him down and everything. But it was it was just a very, very uh, initial visit was very, very strange for me. I was definitely comfortable when I was at, you know, at, you know, we had a house there that, that we rented and I felt a lot more comfortable when we were there because my cousins were already there. And, and so that was definitely when we were out in public, I was just like, be quiet, just kind of go with the flow. Once you get into someone's house or to an area, then you can kind of open and be yourself and stuff. But yeah, that, that, and I can't even imagine, to be honest, traveling in a country like that by myself, like I'm from Afghanistan and I couldn't travel in Afghanistan by myself. Like absolutely not. Even till this day, like I have relatives there, but I need my mom there who knows the routes and who these relatives are. Cause a lot of people would come up to you and be like, oh, I'm your so-and-so like cousin or your, you know, uncle's brother's second, you know, son. It's like random stuff. And you're just like, oh, okay. Hi. You know, <laughs> And, you know, and I just kind of definitely needed my mom there to be like, oh, yeah, that that is your your uncle. It was just 
I will say so to your done. point about building community, I think that's that was like the best crash course ever yeah. <laughs> um, because you do, you have to learn very quickly, right? Like either I was going to find people to talk to or I was going to be really sad for the next five months. There was supposed to be an English speaker in my host home, but the English speaker like got a job somewhere else. So there wasn't a lot of English being spoken in the house. And so it was exhausting. I mean, we're talking about like, how do I communicate that I don't want you to wash my panties? Like that, that became this like huge stressor, right? Like we didn't learn that in class. That's going to conclude our episode for today. Thanks all for tuning in with us and having those brave conversations at Brave Spaces. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.